we're studying a mini-series, kind of like um, Roots or Kennedy or whatever, on Sunday night, and we need one of these, and we're studying the life of Solomon. Well, I hope you brought your Bibles, because in the study of Solomon, we, we really have to uh, go through a um, biblical search to find the pieces to the puzzle of this man's life. What a life it was. No wonder Jesus referred to Solomon in all of his glory. Because probably this man lived in the glory years as much as any other person who has ever lived. Now, some of us like to play these Bible games. I want you to get into it with me and you answer back, okay? We're going to play a little Bible game and you answer back. Okay? The patience of the patience of Job. You've got it? Some of you got that? All right. Second, as old as who? Methuselah. That's right. As old as Methuselah. Okay? Dare to be a Daniel. Now we're separating the, the uh, Baptist from those others who... Uh, Okay, strong as Samson. Somebody said an ox, but that's <laughs> strong as Samson. Okay, now who do you think about when you hear the word the whale? Jonah. How about blank and the flood? Noah, right. How about small as Zacchaeus? Somebody said. Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah. I was thinking of the shoe height myself, but I wasn't going to mention that. Y'all didn't get that. It's shoe height, shoe height. Who's that hissing? <laughs> All right, what? <laughs> All right, Miles, settle down. Okay, what do you think about when you think of Solomon? Wisdom, that's right. Solomon's wisdom. I don't think Miles has gotten a one. Is he about three behind? Is he? Uh, sure glad he didn't go to Baptist school. He'd have flunked out right away. The wisdom of Solomon. But I want to make a point tonight, and the point is this, that the wisdom was only one facet of this great man's life. It was only one part of the life of Solomon. So let's turn to Second Chronicles. That's an Old Testament book. And if you can find Joshua and Judges, and Ruth and First and Second Kings, then you'll get to Chronicles. And we're going to look in the outline and go quickly into the life of Solomon because there was more to this man than his wisdom. I think that when we, um, normally when we begin to think about Solomon, we think of this, the failure of his life, the fact that he became involved in the, the pagan gods of the wives that he had and turned from God. But he was a, in the beginning, a tremendous man, mightily used of God. And anyone can pattern his life out of this, after this man and succeed. 
The first thing that we need to say about Solomon was that he was a man of God. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1 said, Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Now whatever else is said about this man, say this about him. He was a man of God. And I, I, I'm convinced that that's the greatest thing you can say about any man. Now, he may be a great teacher. He may be a great governor. He may be a great coach. He may be a great businessman, successful. But the best thing you can say about any person is that he is a man of God. And when you can say that about a man, that his God was with him, that he walked with God, then you have, you have paid him the highest compliment. Now, I'd like to be known as a, a good pastor, a good preacher, etc. A few other things I'd like to be known as too, but I won't share those. But uh, what I really would like to be remembered by somebody as a man who, was, who walked with God. It suggests progress, it suggests growth, it suggests fellowship. Now I want to show you what a man that walks with God is like. And there are four characteristics of a man who walks with God, and, and you need to know these. So you turn back to 1 Kings. We'll get that. 1 Kings chapter 3. These are the characteristics of a man who walks with God. Jerry was sharing his testimony tonight that he was a, became a Christian, but he really didn't walk with God until he got married and came to Durant, perhaps God leading them here, and began to search in his heart and his life for God. I think we can say about him that he's a man who walks with God. And these are the characteristics. This is what my heart yearns for. First, a man who walks with God is a man who has an authentic humility. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made Thy servant king in place of my father David. Thou hast made Thy servant king in place of David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. This is a brand new thing for me. I'm just a child. I don't know anything about it. He had an authentic humility. He understood that he was where he was because God had placed him there. And he was absolutely and totally helpless without the leadership and the direction and the help of God. He had an authentic humility. He knew that everything about his life that was of any value, of any good, was because of the divine activity of God. Don't ever lose sight of that. Now, I don't think we really can understand that or really appreciate it until we understand that here was a 25-year-old king already set on the throne in the glory days of the empire. And, and it was already said of him that he had more glory than any other king before him. And he recognized that everything he had was the result of God's work in his life. I wonder if you have that same kind of humility. I wonder if you understand that you live and move and have your being in Him. I wonder if you understand, and I understand, that without Him we are nothing. 
Look at verse 28 for the second characteristic of a godly man in that same chapter. Chapter 3. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. They saw that the wisdom of God was in him. Second characteristic of a godly man. He bears witness of God in his life. Now what your family needs to see in you is not just wisdom, but the wisdom of God. And what the world needs to see, your colleagues, your peers, your friends at school, not, don't, they don't need to just see that you're a unique person or you have talents and gifts and abilities that kind of set you apart. What they need to see is the evidence of God upon your life. And it's my deepest conviction that a man who walks with God is a man who has the evidence of God upon his life, the smell of God, the touch of God, the sense of God, the aura of God. And you don't, that person doesn't have to tell you that he's a man who walks with God just to be in his presence and you sense God there. You, he bears witness of that. It's not just wisdom. It's, just, it's not just ability or talent. They need to see God in your life. And if you're a man who walks with God, they see that. Third characteristic is found in chapter 8, verse 12. Turn into that, we find that Solomon comes into the temple there, and he, verse 12 says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I've surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. Now skip down to verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord the God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven or above or on earth beneath who are keeping covenant and showing loving kindness, etc. And thus begins the longest prayer in the Old Testament. Third characteristic of a man of God. He is a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. He's a man who knows how to get alone with God and stretch out his heart to Him. And he's a man who knows how to get with others and stretch out their hands to him. Are you a man of prayer? Um, I, I haven't had time. I've been meaning to, and it just slipped my mind to ask Lee how the little survey came out that we handed out uh, Sunday morning last Sunday or two weeks ago concerning how we spend our time just to see how many of us uh, have in, how many indicated the length of time or the amount of time that we spend in prayer. Let me ask you this question. This is a holiday week, and I know that you were going here and there with your family. Did you spend any time with God in prayer? Was there that kind of a, a hungering and that, that drawing that caused you to go aside and, and spend some time in prayer? A man of God is a man of prayer. Because if you love somebody, you want to spend some time. You want to talk to them. I mean, you want to... I remember... Uh, way back in the good old days when I was dating, you know, how hard it was to leave. You know, we'd park in front of the house and we'd talk a while in the car and then we'd go to the door and uh, say goodnight and everything else that you do there. And, and uh, then, 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 then she wouldn't go inside just because I was holding on to her, you know. I was, and, and so we'd go back out in the car and we'd talk some more and... and uh, 
You know, and you get home and you call them up as soon as you get home and just have something else to say. When you love somebody, you can't get enough time with that person. If you're a man of God, if you're a man of God, you're a man of prayer. Number four, if you're a man of God, you're a man of worship. And so he went into the house of God and he went into, not only did he go there to pray, he went there to worship. And he went there for the people. He was a, a priest in essence. He, he not only went to God for himself, he went to God for the people and he worshiped God. He was a man of worship. If you're a man of God, you'll be in God's place. And I want you to mark this down because it is an absolute truth. You'll never lead anybody closer to God than you yourself have been. All right, there's a second thing about, uh, Sol uh, about Solomon. He was an author and composer. Now, I don't know where I'm going with this thing, so don't worry about it, you know. But just hang in there and follow along. We'll try to get some, lay the groundwork of this, uh, about this man's life. He was an author and composer. Turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 29. Now, Solomon, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. That Hebrew word is rokav, and it means something that grows wider and wider and wider. It's kind of like a megaphone or a funnel. It starts out here at a small end and it just gets wider and wider and wider. He was a man whose mind wasn't satisfied with one little area of interest. He had this hunger, this insatiable appetite for knowledge. And so his mind grew wider and wider. Now I've always uh, uh, understood or believed or thought that when Solomon was given this blank check, and God said, whatever you want, ask me for. He said, I want wisdom. That God just opened up some kind of a trap door and just kind of programmed him with all the wisdom there was. It's not it at all. Because his mind grew and, and, and expanded. He didn't have all that wisdom and that initial gift from God. He learned and his mind was never satisfied with one little area of interest. He wanted to know everything he could know about everything. And so verses 30 and 31 illustrate this rokav, this breadth of interest. Verse 30 says, And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. The wisest, the smartest intellectuals, you get those PhDs whose um, IQs are bigger than my weight. And you bring them all in here, and he knew everything they knew and more. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but it, it, it astounds me, the knowledge of this man. And the next part of this chapter says that he knew something about animals and zoology. He knew about reptiles. He knew about plants and trees and, and insects. He was the wisest man in the world. Now, what do we see in all of this? This is what we see nail this down. We see that there is a tremendous wedding of authentic godliness and academic excellence. You can be intellectually profound, you can be intellectually uh, 
skilled and deeply religious at the same time. It is possible to be wise, to be an intellectual, and to walk with God. Where did we ever get the idea that the intellectuals would not believe that you had to be kind of halfway dumb to believe in God? Not so, my friends. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the man who walks with God is the man who wants to know everything he can about his world and he weds that intellectual pursuit with a deep and profound faith in God. And there is a marvelous wedding in that. You don't have to be stupid to believe in God. Now, um, sometimes, you know, um, I'm just amazed at some of what these guys know that I'm... Dr. Polson over here. I mean, just to hear him talk about uh, the stars and he just names them all, these galaxies. You ever, you, ever, you ever been in on his astronomy stuff? You know, it's amazing. That man's deeply committed to God. And, and, and it behooves us, it's important for us to pray for these men who are on the cutting edge of the intellectual community. Will you join with me to pray for these men who walk with God and at the same time have this fantastic intellectual capacity and this great knowledge? Because they, I believe, are on the cutting edge and they represent something uniquely significant in the life of, of our world and our community. He was an author and composer. He was, a, he was no dummy. He was smart. Number three, I'm hurrying. Just keep quiet. I know what you're thinking. If we get out of here by nine after the business meeting, we can watch Trapper John. We'll be there. Just hang in there. He was an administrator and an architect. Now look at chapter four, and let's look at that. Chapter four. He was an administrator. Now, having, had to, having uh, been charged with that responsibility, let me tell you something. Being an administrator is no easy job. <laughs> Believe me. Okay, look at what this man did. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Solomon was king over all Israel. Skip to verse 7. And Solomon had twelve deputies over all Israel. I mean, he pointed some governors... Now, he thought to himself, this wise man, I can't take care of all this business, so I'm going to administrate, I'm going to delegate. He, he had 12 deputies over all Israel and provided, who provided for the king and his household. Each man had to provide for a month in the year. He had this thing programmed. Now look at chapter 5, verse 13. Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. He delegated the responsibility to 30,000 men, got forced laborers. Look at chapter 19, 9, verse 17. Chapter 9, verse 17. Now Solomon rebuilt Gezer and the lower Bethhoron. This is kind of an urban renewal program that he started. And Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness and the land of Judah and all the storage cities which Solomon had, even the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land under his rule 
And, and if you turn back, we won't do it tonight, and look at chapter 6. He was the one who initiated the building of the most magnificent temple that is, uh, or edifice that's ever been built. He was a magnificent administrator and architect. And in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he told about setting up this complex irrigation system. So it was quite a guy. I mean, he's your number one uh, 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 citizen, <laughs> man of the year. Durant's man of the year, King Solomon. Okay, one last thing. He was a diplomat and an equestrian. Practiced that all afternoon to get it out. Diplomat and an equestrian, chapter 5. Now look at verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend of David. Let's skip to verse 12. And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. You see, there was this, in, this growing, increasing wisdom. And, and, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a covenant. That's just the way he did things. He made a covenant with Hiram. Now, now watch how this progresses. Turn to chapter 9, verse 26. Boy, if you don't have a Bible, you're in big trouble. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Izion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Skip to chapter 10, verse 11. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and very great amounts of spices and precious stones. Never again did such an abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. And also, here's this guy he made a covenant with, and also the ships of Hiram which brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a great number of almond trees and precious stones, etc., etc., and, and the whole point of the matter is, turn, verse, verse 22, etc., is, is indicative of the fact that in making this magnificent covenant as this diplomat, he was able to carry out the functions of God with a smooth uh, and precise um, dispatch. Chapter 10, verse 26. You don't need to turn to that maybe. It shows how, what a great equestrian he was. He loved horses. He set up this great retinue of chariots that became the mighty army. I mean, it was the tank battalion of ancient Israel. Now, I'm going to close with this. Before everybody um, gets a coughing spell and uh, heads for the water fountain. Chapter four, chapter 4 of the little book of James. Would you turn to that over in the New Testament? Chapter 4 of James. Now, this is where I'm going with this thing and the application. Richard Baxter said, when you exegete Scripture, give a little information and a lot of application. Here we are, right here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live 
and also do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, this is the big question I want to ask you. Does what you do, does what you do count for God? Now, some of you are athletes, some of you are students, some of you are teachers, some of you are housewives, business people from all walks of life. Does what you do count for God? I mean, what is the this and the that of your life? Now, here was a man who made this tremendous contribution to the world in so many uh, realms, in, in so many uh, structures of society. Now, you may be just doing one thing in your life, but is it counting for God? I mean, are you giving everything you have to that? Or are you just kind of goofing off and sloughing off? Now, if there's anything that this man's life teaches us, it's this, that whatever you do demands the very best commitment you can make to that. If you're a student, you need to be a student, the very best one. I mean, you need to get in those books and get after it. If you're a businessman, you need to commit yourself to that, the best person you can be, or a teacher, or whatever. And that this and that of your life, are you giving yourself to that? Second question. Is there something else out there beyond where you are that you need to explore? Are you satisfied with mediocrity? That's the question. Are you content just to, you know, kind of make it through, kind of like a C? I believe it was Kipling's um, Explorer that goes like this. This is the age of cultivation, so they said, and I believe them. So I built my barns and stretched my fences and planted my crops in the little border station, tucked away beneath the foothills where the trails run out and stop. This is the edge of cultivation, so they said, and I believe them. Nothing beyond, this is the end. Till a voice as bad as conscience rang on interminable changes, on one everlasting whisper, day and night repeated so, something out beyond the ranges, something else beyond the fences, something waiting for you. Anyone could have found it, but his whisper came to me. Have you just kind of built your little house and stretched your little fences and planted your little crops in a little barter station tucked away beneath the foothills where the trails run out and stop and you're satisfied with everything just as it is? Shame on you. Because there's so much of this world that is yet to be discovered and Romans says, and the world waits with eager longing for the coming of the sons of God. The world is waiting for people who will get beyond where they are to where they need to be. That's the second question. Have you just settled down and been satisfied with mediocrity and there's so much more for you to discover and to do and to be? 
Are you the greatest Christian, prayer warrior, soul winner that you can be? No, you're not, nor am I. We need to keep on moving and striving in that direction. Shame on us if we sit out and satisfy with this tad. And somebody says to me, well, I'm too old to try anything new. No, you never get too old. Listen to what Oswald Sanders says in his little book, Robust in Faith. This and I'm through. He said, are you awake? Get, wake up and get, a, get this. The late Canon C.H. Nash, who founded the Melbourne Bible Institute and trained a thousand young men and women for Christian service, retired from his principalship at the age of 70. At 80, he received assurance from the Lord that a fruitful ministry of 10 years lay ahead of him. This assurance was abundantly fulfilled. During those years, he was uniquely blessed in a ministry of Bible teaching to key groups of clergy and laymen, probably the most fruitful years of his life. When he was nearly 90, the author found him completing the reading of Volume 6 of Toynbee's Monumental History as a mental exercise at the age of 90. Mr. Benjamin Ryrie retired as a missionary to China, of China's Inland Mission when he reached the age of 70. When he was 80, he decided to learn New Testament Greek. I tried that at the age of 19 and like I went crazy. He decided to learn New Testament Greek as he, had the, as he had not had the opportunity when he was younger and he became proficient in reading the Greek New Testament. At 90, he attended a refresher course in New Testament Greek in Toronto Theological Seminary. When he was a hundred, he was present at a meeting at which the author was speaking. In his pocket was a small, well-worn Greek lexicon, which he used to brush up his Greek while traveling by public transport. Can't you just see him riding on a bus and, hmm, little Greek word there. Need to learn that one. hundred years old. It's too, it's, it is too late. Ah, oh, nothing is too late. Cato learned Greek at 80. Sophocles wrote his grand Oedipus. And Simonides bore off the prize of verse from his compeers when each had numbered more than fourscore years. And Theophrastus at fourscore and ten had begun his characters of men. Chaucer at Woodstock with his nightingales at sixty wrote the Canterbury Tales. Goethe at Weimar toiling to the last completed Faust when eighty years were past, What then shall we sit idly down and say, The night has come, it is no longer day. For age is opportunity no less than youth itself, though in different dress. And as the evening twilight fades away, the sky is filled with stars, invisible by day. You're never too old. Let's pray together.